It's good to be together. Did you notice the background up here? A little different color. Looks pretty good, huh? I heard somebody come in today and they said, hey, it smells clean. And uh, we did a lot of work yesterday. A whole bunch of people came. It was so cool. And uh, that's one of the things that they did. They painted that wall. So we're grateful uh, for all of you that helped us yesterday. Uh, today we are in the book of Acts. So if you would please uh, make your way there. We're in chapter one. We've been there now for three weeks. So uh, today our intention is to finish that particular chapter. If you haven't been with us, hopefully you've been following along, reading ahead, uh, reading behind, I guess. Uh, you might think of it that way. Um, just so you're, you're along, you have a sense of what's going on, and I'll try and remind you. And certainly we want to welcome our friends that are at home. Uh, we miss you guys uh, being in person with you someday. Um, three years, five years, someday we'll be together again. Uh, I remember when it was two weeks, and we were like, oh, two weeks. <laughs> you know, but here, whatever, let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to gather, even if uh, we're not in this room. Lord, uh, coming together with uh, a like heart and mind to hear from you. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless us with your voice this morning, that you'd speak to our hearts. Remarkably, Lord, every one of us in a different area, different spot in life, different things going on that we're dealing with. Some of us in uh, really high places right now and enjoying uh, life and the stage of life we're in. Others of us struggling um, significantly with the stage of life we're in and the rest of us somewhere in between perhaps. And so, Father, we know how you can minister even in the midst uh, of all of those different circumstances through the same study of the scripture. Lord, we know your word is alive and it's active. And Lord, as it goes forth, it mixes with the work that you're doing within us. And it sets up root there that it might bear much fruit. And so we're praying that you would do that. And so bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 1, I'll remind you, uh, looks at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. We, we saw in one of the verses that Jesus appeared over a period of about 40 days, or it was 40 days, that he appeared, he disappeared, he reappeared to his disciples. Sometimes the 11 of them gathered together, sometimes a smaller group of six or seven of them that were together, sometimes two guys on the road walking. He pulled up alongside and he started walking with them. Uh, and then in one instance in the book of 1 Corinthians, we learn that over 500 people uh, were together when Jesus appeared. And he taught them, and it says that in our verse here, I think it's verse 5 or so, that he had been presenting himself alive to them and speaking to them about the kingdom of God and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was readying them for the event we saw last week where he would depart from them and not to reappear in the physical sense, his ascension into heaven. And we spent our time last week considering that and the significance of that but we remind ourselves that just before Jesus was taken up out of their sight, that he told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which we saw was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so as you look at verse 13, take notice, it says, Now when they had entered uh, Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it names who was there, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, 
and Judas, the son of James. Now, that upper room is the same upper room, it might sound familiar to you, as they celebrated the Passover in 40 days earlier, five, six weeks earlier, uh, where they celebrated what we have come to know as the Last Supper. And so there's this particular room in Jerusalem. We're going to see later, it talks about 100 plus that are there. It's a larger room there that they had been able to gather in. It belonged to somebody that they were connected with because these disciples of Jesus, these closest disciples of Jesus, they don't live in Jerusalem. Most, all of them now, because Judas is gone, are from the Galilee region. And so it's a, the home of a friend. Some people believe that it was Mark's family uh, that they go to. And so that's where they go back to. And they go to this place, and there they're going to wait. Again, we have the name of the, the names of those that are there. And you'll notice, well, you won't notice, I'll tell you. This, this is the 11 apostles. Well, normally, we, we think of the term the 12 apostles. But remember, Judas Iscariot had betrayed the Lord and had run off and had left them. And we'll, we'll look a little more deeply into that. But this is the 11, the remaining ones. And the fact that they're gathered, that, this is one of those verses we look at and we're like, eh, okay. And we skim through it kind of quickly. This is a verse which speaks about and speaks to the faithfulness of God. You remember in John chapter 17, where Jesus prayed what we have come to know as the high priestly prayer. We talk about the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is really our prayer that the Lord gave us. John chapter 17 is the Lord's prayer. It's a record of Jesus' communicating with his Father. And during that high priestly prayer of his, he says this. I'm going to go back a little earlier. Verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, the son of destruction is Judas Iscariot. The rest of them, as that verse says, not one of them has been lost. You remember when Jesus was speaking to Peter, he was there with all the disciples, and Peter said, uh, these guys may betray you, but I would never betray you. And Jesus, you know, he spoke to him, he said, look, the devil has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Jesus prayed for his disciples, and not one of them had, that not one of them would be lost. And here we are now in the book of Acts, and who is gathered together? Every one of them. Not one of them had been lost. The Lord was faithful. Paul will say in his writings that he is faithful to bring to completion the work that he has begun in you. And if he was faithful with those disciples, he'll be faithful with you as well. The Lord saw each one of them through and brought them to this particular place. And he had gathered with them on the Mount of Olives, and he had told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so here in verse 13, in obedience to the Lord's command, that's exactly what they do. They go back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. It says, and all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer excuse me, to prayer, together with Mary, the mother of Jesus, the women, and his brothers. All of them with one accord. Who knew Honda was making vehicles even back then? Thank you. Thank you. I won't be here all night um, for your pleasure. Anyhow, they go back and they wait. The waiting time. 
last week I began to introduce this idea of the waiting time doesn't have to be wasted time. Oftentimes we, we look at the time where we have to wait and we despise that time. We're not interested in that time. We want to get ahead of that time. We're wasting that particular time we feel. And yet the waiting time does not have to be a wasted time. And we saw with these disciples, the very first way in which they did not waste the waiting time was by being obedient to what the Lord had told them to do, what the Lord had instructed them to do. Even if they didn't have all the answers, even if they didn't know the why to what it was they were doing, they knew the what. The Lord said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there. How long are we going to wait there? Go back to Jerusalem and wait there. And it went on to be 10 days that they waited in that area. But they waited faithfully and they waited obediently. And so the first thing that we can learn in those periods of waiting for us, maybe we're a young person and we want to get on with our career, we want to get on with our lives and we're waiting. Maybe we're at a job and we feel we're underemployed and the Lord has better things for us. But here we are in this particular place and it's a time of waiting. All of us, we have these times of waiting. They don't have to be wasted times. We can be obedient even though we don't know all the answers. And that's what the disciples were doing. They were being obedient. And in addition to being obedient, they were using the time to devote themselves to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Wisely using the time to seek the Lord to understand his will. It says there that they were devoted. The, the phrase or the term devoted it means to pray with a sense of desperation. So they didn't just kind of say a couple of quick prayers and then say, all right, get the cards out, let's play while we're waiting here. It was a sense of desperation on their part. There was an earnestness to the, on their part. There was this sense of, God, you have to reveal what's going on here that we might understand. That's where they were in prayer. That's where we need to be when we pray. I don't think we pray that way. We pray that way when the doctor says, I'm concerned, come back in next week and I'll have results. Then we pray with earnestness, don't we? But you know, as we're just sort of going about life and it's the norm of life, we lift up a quick prayer. But it's not from the place of desperation. Sadly, it takes sort of difficult circumstances to bring us to that place. It doesn't have to. I wish it wouldn't in my life, but it does. Those who study revivals, in church history, and I'd encourage you, pick up some history books of revivals within the Christian church. Pick up biographies of individuals that were used in revivals of, in the Christian church. One of the things that we discover and those who study them discover is they're always preceded by a time of earnest prayer where a people, and it's oftentimes a small group of people, are gathered together and they're praying I think of the Fulton Street Revival, which took place in New York City, and it, it spread all around the world. It was one businessman who closed down his business from noon to one every day, or something close to that, at lunchtime every single day, and he invited people to come to pray. And he was excited. I think God's stirring. I think God's moving. We should be praying. Six people came that first day. But those six people devoted themselves to prayer. And before you know it, tens of thousands of people were gathering in churches at lunchtime every single day of the week to seek the Lord. And the Lord brought a revival, 1858, in the United States of America. God typically begins 
by moving on his church to pray. And sometimes it's just a small group of people. I'd encourage you, if you're sensing a stir to pray, don't wait for the church to call a prayer meeting. Invite some people to your house. Get a Zoom account. Log on and a bunch of you can get on there that, in that way. When we have our times of prayer here at church, come to those times of prayer and cry out to the Lord. God begins, he stirs his people in, internally. He creates in them a desperation for him. And as he does, he begins to pour out his blessing on his community. A revival comes. Now we hear terms like revival. We hear terms like awakening. There is a slight difference. A revival is a work that God does in the life of believers, his children. He revives them. They already have life, and he stirs that life up once more. An awakening is when a person comes to understand the Lord for the first time. The great awakening of uh, the 1700s, uh, the second great awakening of the mid-1850s in the United States are examples of that. The Jesus movement of the 1970s, where people that had no clue, no interest in even knowing the Lord in large numbers begin to come to this place where they understand. But almost always awakenings pre are preceded by revivals. It begins in the house of the Lord. It begins in our hearts. And so I encourage you just once more, if God is doing a stirring work in your heart, then let it begin with you. Devote yourself in earnestness to prayer. Find another brother, another sister that are devoted to that as well. And then the two of you, and then the four of you, and then the eight of you. And before you know it, the entire church is praying. Harry Ironside, he said it, it works this way. He said, God stirs the church up to pray in view of that which he is about to do so that they will be prepared for what he is about to do. He stirs his church to pray. And that's what he did here in Acts chapter 1. He stirred his children, these disciples, to go back into Jerusalem where they devoted themselves to pray and they did so with earnestness. Now the second thing that we have learned about revivals from those that have studied them, studied them is that they're almost always associated, if not always, associated with a remarkable unity among his people. A remarkable unity among his people. Not just in this body of believers necessarily, but all of those that name the name of Christ are drawn together by the common purpose of seeing God's will be done in their life and in the lives of their community. And he blesses his people with a remarkable unity. Again, look at Acts chapter 1 here. It says that the disciples were gathered with one accord. Verse 14, it says that they, it uses the word together to describe the interactions that they were having with one another. They were together. They were with one accord. That word with one accord or that phrase with one accord, it's used 11 times in the book of Acts. And each time it's, an asso it's associated with an outpouring of God's blessing which shouldn't surprise us. Psalm 133 says this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. And then it goes on, it says, For there the Lord has commanded his blessing life forevermore. And so where brothers and sisters are dwelling together in perfect unity, God commands his blessing upon those individuals and upon that place. It's described in the psalm as life forevermore. I think to use the term Jesus used, it's life abundant. It's the abundant life that he promised. 
And it comes when God's people are united with one another. Now, the unity that comes from God's Holy Spirit is a blessing that comes from God's Holy Spirit, but there's a role that we play in it as well. Unity isn't something that just happens because the church is comprised of sinful people. If you're a sinful person, would you raise your hand? Yeah, we're all, yeah, she's like, you know. We're, we're sinners. The church is comprised of sinners. And as sinners, we hurt one another from time to time. We offend one another from time to time, usually without intention. Like I didn't come into this place to start any problems with people or whatever, and it's usually, I didn't intend to do it, and yet it happens because we're sinners. And as sinners, our primary thought is ourselves. And so maybe we ignore a person. Maybe we didn't properly pay attention to a person. Maybe we didn't ask a person about something they assumed we were going to ask them about, and then they leave offended that you didn't ask them about that thing that they thought you should be asking them about. And I was just thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about you. And so we have to work at unity. Let me give you this example. Perhaps not meaning to be, we're insensitive to someone. The offended party then leaves and stews over the offense and decides, you know what, I'm not going to forgive them for that. They shouldn't have wronged me. Soon bitterness and hard-heartedness sets in and they begin to pull away from that other individual. Then they've pulled away. Then the other person becomes offended that you're pulling away from me. And we develop this cycle. And now our unity has been lost. And even worse than that, a disunity has begun to set in. And so it takes work for us to maintain unity with one another. It takes dependence upon the Lord to overlook the offense of another person, to forgive another person, to go and talk out my issue with another person, to be gracious to someone when they come to me and they apologize or whatever it might be. The easier thing is just to walk away. The easier thing is I'm not sitting on this side anymore. I'm going to sit over there now. And I don't have to have any interaction with that particular person. The unifying thing is to approach one another in love and with one accord. And it's that that the Lord blesses. That's what these disciples were doing. They were devoted to prayer and they were gathered together with one accord. And the cycle was started. Because the more devoted they are, the more united they are. The more united they are, the more given they are to prayer. The more they're praying with one another, God's blessing them with the greater unity and so on and so forth. And it goes on and on, and God is blessing it. That is a good, healthy cycle. And that's what the disciples were in the midst of here in Acts chapter 1. And it's what God would have for us to be experiencing as a body of believers as well. That we would be a united body of believers. So these disciples, rather than wasting their time, they invest their time. So we've seen they're being obedient, even when they don't have all the answers, even in the unknown. We see that they're devoted to prayer, and then we see that they're pursuing fellowship. Those are some of the components of a gathering of believers that the Lord blesses. Look at Acts chapter 2 for a moment, verse 42. Acts 2, 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And how did the Lord respond? Look at verse 47. 
the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. I think those two verses say succinctly what's going on in Acts chapter 1. And the Lord is blessing them and is working. Amen. Now, before I move on, let me just comment a little bit on who's there. I already mentioned to you the 11 apostles are there, but we also see that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And we see it says, and also his brothers. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You'll notice Mary is there with the disciples, but the disciples aren't praying to Mary. And I think this is an important thing, particularly in the culture that a lot of us come out of, because a lot of us come out of a culture where Mary was one that we pray to as well. These disciples aren't praying to Mary. Nowhere in this passage, and this is the last time we're going to see Mary in the Bible, but nowhere in this passage is there any indication that they're directing their prayers to Mary or that they're seeking Mary for her blessing or even for her wisdom. She's seen in the midst of the disciples, not above the disciples. Nowhere in the Bible is Mary elevated to a place of prominence in the way that she has been perhaps in our particular day. Acts 1 shows her as a fellow disciple. An obedient, well, certainly so. Remember when, when the angel came to her, she's like, I don't quite get all this. But she says, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. I'm willing to serve you as you would direct me. So that's a great disciple. But she's not one that we'd be, we are to be praying to or looking to for wisdom. Some have gone so far as to say that she is a co-redemptress with Christ. There's a church down in Mexico. They have Mary on one side of a cross and Jesus on the other side of the cross. The Bible doesn't teach that. All right, so we respect her. We honor her for the role that she played in the life of uh, our Savior. But Jesus is our Savior. Secondly, uh, maybe just a semantic thing that I think is important. You'll notice here she's referred to as Mary, the mother of Jesus. Oftentimes referring to Mary, we refer to her as Mary, the mother of God. The Bible never refers to her as Mary, the mother of God. Yes, Jesus is God in the flesh, but the wording of the scripture is important. She's Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary, the mother of God. Doctrinally speaking, I think it would be incorrect to say that. Next thing you'll notice that the brothers are there. His brothers, Jesus's, are there along with the women. I bring this up because there are some that suggest that Jesus didn't have any brothers or that Jesus didn't have any sisters. There are some that suggest that Mary remained a perpetual virgin even after she gave birth to Jesus. We know she was the virgin mother of Jesus. And some suggest that she remained in that state for the rest of her days. This verse refers to Jesus' brothers. Also, you can look at Matthew 12, 46, Mark 6, 3, John 7, 1 Corinthians 9, and Galatians chapter 1. And in each of those instances, it refers to his brothers and, in some cases, his sisters as well. So, just be aware of that. There's something else I take from it. I don't like just interesting facts, but I think interesting facts are important, especially when they influence our theology. But here's another point that I think is significant. Jesus' brothers were there. We learn elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers didn't believe him to be the Messiah during his lifetime. 
We read in John chapter 7, 5, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I get it. You know, if my brother told me he was the Messiah, I wouldn't believe it necessarily. Um, so I, I kind of get it. We learn this in, also in John uh, chapter 7. Not only did they not believe in him, they, it seems they're mocking him. They're antagonistic toward him. John 7, 3, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea also, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And you say, well, maybe they, they were trying to encourage him. It's, context seems more like they're trying to mock him because then it goes on to say even his brothers didn't believe in him. We read in the Gospel of Mark that they think he went out of his mind. And so they send sort of this, they're this delegation to come get Jesus. Here, Jesus, wear this nice white coat. You know, we're going to take it. Why are my arms backwards? You know, this kind of thing. They're going to take him home. They think that he is out of his mind, it says there. And so Jesus' brothers, before his crucifixion and resurrection, were skeptical and a bit cynical toward him. And yet here they are now gathered with the other disciples as part of the group that is earnestly devoted to one another and to the Lord in prayer. And so God had did a changing work in his son, or in uh, these brothers of his son. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes, you know, you look at people in your life and you think, man, they'll never become a Christian. They mock me every time I bring it up, or even if I don't bring it up, I overhear them mocking the things that I believe and so on. And you want to kind of stay away from those people, don't you? They'll never come to the Lord. And yet here we have some folks that one might have thought would have never come to the Lord. And yet here they are, two months later, 40 days later, not even two months. No one is beyond the saving arm of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Devoted to prayer. Well, the passage goes on. Peter rises up and he's going to address this group. We know they're, they're there for a total of 10 days. We don't know how long it has been until Peter decides to stand up. But nonetheless, he does. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in the ministry. So now there's 120. Before we saw it was the 11 apostles a couple of brothers, because there's an S on the end, so we'll just say two brothers. The women, so that's another two, plus Mary. 15, 16 people gathered, maybe a few more than that. Now the number has grown to 120. So these are not necessarily new converts. They're probably people that followed the Lord previously. And yet they're now coming to gather with the others. I think that speaks to what was going on there. The Lord was blessing them with his presence he was uniting them in fellowship, and others were drawn to that. And they're coming. So now there's a group of about 120 that are in this room here. And Peter's or in this place here, maybe a courtyard of sorts. And he stands up, Peter that is. And he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And then he points them to two psalms, relatively obscure psalms. Psalm 69 Psalm 109. That indicates to me that at the very least during this time, Peter and the others. Now, did Peter get up on his own and nobody else was part of the conversation? 
He got everybody's attention, said, hey, I was thinking, maybe. Or had they been talking about this? And finally, Peter said, well, it seems we all agree. And Peter stood up and sort of, this is the consensus of the group. One way or the other, it seems as if they've been discussing or thinking about the scriptures and thinking about the teachings that they had learned in the past and what the scripture, how the scripture speaks into those particular things. And Peter draws their attention to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And the reason he does so is because they're going to address what I'll call the Judas situation. Now, the Judas situation was a situation in, involving Judas Iscariot. And we see in our passage, there's another fellow named Judas. But there was this guy, Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot was the one, as you no doubt remember, that betrayed Jesus Christ. Peter points that out in verse 16. It says, concerning Judas, Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then after, feeling remorse for his actions for guiding people to Jesus so they could arrest Jesus and ultimately kill Jesus. After feeling remorse, we learn, as it says in verse 18 and 19, I'll read it to you, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, al that is, the field of blood. So the Judas situation, Judas is gone, Judas is dead. Now this group of 12 is a group of 11. They have an odd number, so to speak. And we know Jesus sent them out two by two. Perhaps they are thinking of that. We have to replace this particular fellow here. Now let me just make an aside here, because some people get tripped up on this. This passage says Judas took the money that he used to, buy, to betray Jesus that they bought a field with it, he bought a field with it, and then he died by his insides bursting open and everything coming out. But when you go back and you look at the Gospels, the Gospels seem to tell a different story, two different stories. The Gospels seem to indicate that, and I'll read it to you, Matthew 27, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver, so he obviously didn't buy a field, he gave it to the chief priest and the elders, and he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, that seems like a contradiction between Matthew 27 and Acts chapter 1. Did he buy a field or did he return the money? Well, we get a little more insight, and I think it's this. Judas attempted to return the money. The religious leaders said, look, that's your problem. We're not interested in it. Judas, as it says, he threw the money down at their feet. Nobody's going to allow money just to sit there. My dad was picking up pennies the other day. I'm like, Dad, we're doing okay. We don't need to, to bend down and pick up these pennies. You know, but here's this 30 pieces of silver that is lying there. They pick it up. They realize we can't put it back into the treasury. And so instead, as it says in the passage, uh, continuing in Matthew 27, the priest taking the pieces of silver, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Interesting that that concerns them. They paid the blood money. So they took counsel, and they decided to buy with them the, pot, the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. And so it's been called the field of blood to this particular day. Now you should know that Jews, even to today, if possible, they want to bury their dead by sundown. 
impossible, even back then. And so you have a stranger coming into Jerusalem, dies in Jerusalem, where are you going to bury this person? They may not even have family that have, you know, a plot of ground nearby or whatever. And so they had this particular field where the stranger could be buried in. And it was purchased with the money that was originally given to Judas to betray Jesus. And so how did Judas buy this particular field? Well, he bought it in the sense that these chief priests were acting as his agents, taking his money, using his money in that particular purpose. Now, it goes on to say that Judas uh, burst open and his bowels gushed out. Anybody going out to brunch after? Um, keep this verse in mind here. Now this, I think we need to use perhaps a little bit of uh, heavenly imagination, some reasoning here, because it tells us in the Gospels that he hanged himself. It says here that he fell and his body burst open here. It seems as if something to this effect took place, that he chose a tree with a branch above some cliff of sorts, that he went running off of that cliff you know, as his neck is tied to this particular branch, and he hanged himself. And either from his own weight, uh, from the initial lunge, or as time went on, the branch broke, it went crashing down, his body went crashing down to the bottom of this ravine of sorts, and there it burst, burst open, and there he died. All right, so I, I know it doesn't specifically say that, but it doesn't contradict that as well that the two events could be part of the same larger event. That's the sort of thing that is happening. That's the sort of thing that is being referenced here. So it's not a contradiction that you have to be alarmed with, that you can't trust your Bible. You just kind of pull back and you think about it a little. Now notice this about verses 18 and 19. Notice that they're written in parentheses. What that means is that Peter didn't say those words, but the author of Acts added those words to give us a little bit of explanation, to give us a little bit of context. We know Luke is the author of Acts. Peter is the man that has risen up here to speak. And so we can read straight through verses 16, 17, and then we're going to pick up in verse 20. Verse 16, it says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. Then skip down to verse 20. It says, For it is written, this is Peter's words continuing, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So here's Peter, here's the others. They're contemplating the departure of Judas. They're meditating on these things in light of the scripture. Best thing you could ever do when you're dealing with circumstances, you don't really know what's going on. Meditate on them in light of the scripture. What does the scripture speak into that situation? And then Peter or the group, Peter being the spokesman of the group, they come to the conclusion that another would need to replace Judas. Another would need to take his place, bringing the number back up to 12. Peter presents two scriptures to support his position. Again, Psalm 69, which says this, May their camp be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. And you'll see the wording is essentially the same, slightly different, going from the plural to the singular. 
And then in Psalm 109, he says, And may his days be few, and may another take his office. Now, I venture to guess, if you were reading your scriptures without the instruction of Peter here in the book of Acts, you probably wouldn't have come to the conclusion that Peter came to by reading those particular verses. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's the conclusion that Peter came to. The Holy Spirit illuminated these verses and made application to the Judas situation that I've been describing here. So as we've been taking notice, the apostles, they go back to Jerusalem. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And among other things, they're studying the scriptures. Now, we don't know exactly what they're studying, but I think we can begin to take some educated guesses. I don't think they turned to Genesis chapter 1 and said, let's just read and we'll figure something out. I think they have questions and they're searching the scriptures for the answers to those questions. And this guy is saying, well, that reminds me a little of a verse in the Psalms. And this guy is saying, well, you know, Zechariah speaks to that. And to get, well, let's turn there and let's look. And they're trying to get answers to their questions. What kind of questions would they have there in Jerusalem? Well, why did the Messiah have to die? You think that's a question that they probably ask? I think it is. I wonder if they're asking this question, is there ever going to be an earthly kingdom that the Messiah would reign over or not? We asked Jesus that, is this the time you're going to do it? And he didn't answer it at that point, and he answered a different question about us coming here. Well, is there ever going to be a time where the Messiah will reign? So they go to the scripture for that. And if there is, when? When is that going to happen? Next question is, if it's not happening tomorrow, but it's going to be way down the line, what are we to be doing in the meantime? What does the scripture say about that? And if it, we should be evangelizing, if that was their conclusion, and Jesus sent us out in the past two by two, what do we do now that there's 11 of us? You'll notice the way that they're worded there. It says Peter and John, James and Andrew, Simon, Bartholomew and you know whatever, the next guy. It, it lists them in groups of two. I wonder if they were the partners that went out. And then you get to the last one, and there's three guys in that group. And so perhaps they're asking a question, what do we do now? Maybe they're asking the question. I think they are based on what Peter will get up and say in the next chapter. What is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What's it going to look like when it happens in our lives? So these kinds of questions they're asking, one of those being, what do we do about Judas and that situation? And so Peter, showing wisdom, he stands up. And the first thing that he says is this. He says, Judas didn't destroy God's plan. He actually fulfilled the Lord's plan. Again, in the verse, he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And there's a wisdom and there's a maturity that Peter demonstrates with those words. Perhaps the worst thing that they could have ever experienced was the betrayal of their Lord by a friend of theirs and then his death in the way that he died. And yet, Peter, looking at that, says, you know what? That didn't destroy God's plan. He says the scripture had to be fulfilled. He rests in the sovereignty of the Lord. And he maintains this hold on the truth that the Lord remains enthroned, even in the midst of it. And so he says the Holy Spirit spoke of these things. He spoke of these things beforehand. Now, at the same time, Judas acknowledges that, Peter, that excuse me, Peter acknowledges that Judas 
is nevertheless still responsible for his actions. And so the Lord knew these things were going to happen. He saw how these things were going to happen. Even before Judas was born, he knew Judas would be the one that would betray his son. And yet Judas is held responsible for betraying his son. He says there, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, that place of destruction. He made the deliberate choice to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. For 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. What a sad and cautionary tale Judas is. Judas walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He had a private setting with Jesus to sit in a small room of 10, 11, 12 people to be able to stop the Lord, ask questions, to observe the Lord, watch the Lord, learn from the Lord, be with other men and ladies that were interested in the things of the Lord. And yet Judas didn't know the Lord. What a sad and cautionary tale that it is. Because all the time Judas was a fraud. Even though he was numbered among the rest of the disciples. I think that ought to speak to us. As those, how many church church going people are going to enter into eternity and have it revealed that they never truly knew the Lord. I think of Jesus' words. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. You know, Peter, or excuse me, Judas did miracles in the name of the Lord. He delivered people of demons in the name of the Lord. He perhaps even prophesied in the name of the Lord. And yet we learn that he was the son of perdition and that he went to destruction. Listen, if you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here. I don't want you to think, oh, he doesn't want me there. I'm really glad you're here. Because you have the opportunity to hear and then to chew on, to meditate, to think about truth. So if you're not yet a believer, we're glad that you're here. But what I do want to say to each of us is attending church isn't what gets us into heaven. Attending church, being part of a small group, or reading our Bible every day, and I joined the Through the Bible in a Year program, all that kind of stuff, is not what gets us into heaven or secures for us a right relationship with God. Judas went to church every week, you might say. He attended all the services and was even sent out as a servant of the Lord. What makes a person right with God is receiving the free gift of salvation that he has made available to us and relinquishing our lives into his hands. That's what makes a person right with the Lord. And if you've never done that, I encourage you, do that. And do it soon. Now, Peter says about Judas, he says, he was numbered among us, verse 17, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. And then he comes to this conclusion uh, that this prophecy regarding another uh, taking his office has to be fulfilled. We see that in 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord went in and went out, the end of verse 22, one of these men must become a witness with us to his resurrection. 
I think in this we see one more thing that the disciples do well during this time of waiting to ensure that the waiting time is not a wasted time, and that is they recognized the need for leadership and they took steps to supply leadership. They already know that the Lord is about to pour out his Holy Spirit on their lives and that they would be his witnesses to the end of the earth. Remember, Jesus told him that, them that. That means that many were going to come to know the Lord and would thus need to be discipled in the things of the Lord. Remember the Great Commission that Jesus shared. It's recorded for us at the end of Matthew chapter 28. It didn't, doesn't say go into all the world and make converts. It says go into all the world and make disciples. Communicate the gospel message. People's lives will be changed. And then they need to be taught. They need to be discipled. And to do that, to have believers to be taught, leaders would need to be raised up. And these disciples sense that. They know that. And so they're taking steps to do that even before the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And so here they are. They're desiring to see God's will uh, be done. And based on the principle of Psalm 109, they determined that they need to replace Judas. Two criteria. Number one, the person had to be someone that accompanied the apostles all the time that the Lord went in and out during his earthly ministry. That's the first criteria that they have. And the second one is that, uh, that they observed the resurrection. They witnessed the resurrection. It says that there at the conclusion of verse 22. Now, we don't find any uh, place in the Bible that says that's the qualifications of an elder. What I mean by that is nowhere in the Old Testament does it says these are the qualifications of an elder. This is, these are the qualifications that this group of individuals gathered together who had been devoted to prayer, who were united in spirit with one another, who had been studying the scriptures. This is the conclusion that they came up with. Somebody has called it through their sanctified common sense, they came up with these particular qualifications. These seem like logical quali uh, common sense requirements to the successor to Judah, Judas for the office of apostle. As we read in the book of Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 15, it says there that the apostles, they made a decision because it seemed good to them and to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what's going on here, that it seemed good to them and to the Holy Spirit. It was their sanctified common sense. Now, certainly we want to be careful with making decisions that are based on simply what seems right to us. Voltaire, I've heard this quote before. I didn't know who said it. It was Voltaire. He said it in the 1700s. It's been around for 300 years. And he said, common sense is not so common these days. And so certainly we want to be careful that, well, it just felt right and so I did it because you can feel the wrong thing and make the wrong decisions. But remind ourselves, what's going on with these disciples? They're seeking to obey the Lord. They're praying. They're sharing life with, it, with one accord with one another. They're digging into the scriptures and discussing those scriptures together. It seems to me they're doing everything that they can to place themselves in the place where the impression upon them was almost certainly God's impression. And so they say, these are the qualifications. Notice, though, their common sense didn't answer every question because they were able to narrow the choice down to two men. Verse 23 says they put forward two, Joseph, who they also called Barsabas, 
who was also called Justice, and Matthias. I'm not sure why the first guy needs three aliases here. Maybe that's a reason not to pick him. All right. But you got uh, the first fella, and then you have this fella, Messiah. We'll call him Barsabas and Matthias, or Matthias. Two names. Then they take those names and they go to the Lord. Verse 24. And so they prayed and they say, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship uh, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And so notice that in humility, they admit that they don't know the right choice. They don't have all of the answers, even with sanctified common sense. And so they rest their confidence in the Lord. Lord, you're going to have to guide. You're going to have to direct. Notice what they do in verse 24. They pray. They say, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Then look at verse 26. And so they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Casting lots was kind of like drawing straws, something we might do, or the oddsies evens, one, two, three, you know, one of these kinds of things. You'll be one, I'll be two. Through prayer, the apostles, they commit the matter to the Lord, and then they ask for a revelation of God's will through the lots. Now, there are some that criticize the disciples for this. There are a lot of people that criticize the disciples for a lot of things. Um, I like to be careful uh, with doing that. I don't like... Uh, I should just criticize myself. Uh, and, but there are a lot of people who like to criticize the disciples. One reason they criticize the disciples, they say, is that the disciples were limiting the Holy Spirit. They gave the Holy Spirit two choices, and they said, you can pick one of those two. And then they'll go on to say, who's Matthias? What did he do? Who's the clear apostle that God had chosen? Well, read the rest of the book of Acts. Read the New Testament. Who wrote half of the New Testament? The Apostle Paul. And so here are the disciples. They give the Holy Spirit two choices, when in reality, the Holy Spirit had somebody else in mind altogether, the, Holy, um, the Apostle Paul. Well, that's the line of thinking. That's the particular argument that they're giving. The second critique that is out there is that these guys use the lot to make a decision. Do we really want to be a people that rely on the luck of the draw? to make our decisions? Well, that's what they chose to do. And both of those critiques, I think, are reasonable. There are a lot of good people that, that critique them and uh, have a problem with those particular things. But I will say just a couple things. It, it seems strange to us to make a decision like an apostle of the first century church on the bigger straw or the smaller straw or whether you roll a, an odd number or an even number. That seems peculiar here. I will remind you, however, it wasn't a peculiar thing amongst the Jews of the first century, which all of these guys here are, these early apostles. This is the way that the offices and the duties of the temple were determined. First Chronicles chapter 24, they had a criteria for who could be put up, and then they cast the lot to determine who would be working in this job and doing this for this particular week, and so on and so forth. And so they cast the lot. In fact, it's almost certain, we don't know for sure, but on the breastplate that the high priest wore, we know that there was something called the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't know exactly what it was, but it helped to determine the will of the Lord. 
And what people historically have speculated was that there was a pouch on the breast, breastplate of the high priest, and when he was seeking the Lord's uh, direction on a particular matter, he would essentially place before the Lord a yes question or a, a question with a yes or no answer. Should we go forth or shouldn't we? And then he would reach into his pocket and he would pull out one of the two stones, obviously not being able to see what the stones were, and one was colored, uh, one color and one was colored the other. And so let's just say it was a black stone and a red stone. Red meant yes, black meant no. He reaches in, pulls out. Well, obviously the will of the Lord is that we not go because I pulled out that particular color stone. And so that's essentially the casting of the lots. The book of Proverbs, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That you can entrust yourself to the Lord and his direction through it. So casting lots was a recognized means of determining the will of the Lord in the Old Testament. And so these disciples, they, as best as they could, sought the will of the Lord from their own sanctified common sense, and then they commit the matter to the Lord in this particular way. Now, the next question, though, is, should they have waited a few years until Paul would have become a viable option? Was Matthias the wrong choice because they only gave the Holy Spirit two choices? Well, I'll say this. Certainly, I do believe the Apostle Paul was an apostle, although he's not included in the group of 12. He's not numbered among that particular group. I don't think the Apostle Paul had a problem with that. Nowhere do we read in the book of Acts that he had a problem with that. And he is the main character from chapter 13 through chapter 28. Nowhere do we read in his epistles that he had a problem with that. Or explained how I'm the real Apostle Paul. Don't you count that Matthias fella. He doesn't address it. He doesn't deal with it in any way whatsoever. Also, in Acts chapter 6, I find this interesting. When's Paul become a believer? Some of you might know. Those at home, just yell it out. Uh, anyone? Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 6, it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect, and so on and so forth. Not the 11, but the 12. And so it seems the Holy Spirit is okay with Matthias as being the 12th particular one. Does this really matter? <laughs> Probably not. All right? You're still going to get angry in traffic and have to bring the matter to the Lord. All right? And I don't think this verse is going to necessarily impact you, but I think it's good for us to consider these things. Should they have cast lots? Was Paul the, the one that they should have waited for? Or was Messiah, Matthias uh, the appropriate one? Uh, you can dig in. You can study the people you like to study and sort of form your own opinion. Uh, but nonetheless, they picked this particular fella. And they did so seeking as much common sense, sanctified uh, through all those things that I mentioned, and then committing the matter to the Lord. I'd encourage you to live your life in the same way. You're going to have to make decisions in your life. And you can't necessarily turn to a particular page about every particular decision. You want to buy a house, and you're going out, and the realtor shows you five different homes. And you're looking at those homes, and you know there's different pluses and minuses for each one. And finally, you have to pull the trigger, and you have to make a decision. And so you go before the Lord, and what does the scripture speak? Okay, and I can get that house, but I'm going to have to take another job to get that particular house. I'll never see my family that's going to be in that house, 
maybe this isn't the right choice. That's sanctified common sense that you're bringing into the equation. And that's what you'll need to do in life. And so I encourage you, take steps to ensure that the decisions you're making are according to the spirit as opposed to according to the flesh. And how do you do that? Well, you seek to be obedient. You follow the lead of, the whole, of these disciples by seeking to be obedient, by studying the scriptures, by devoting yourself to prayer and to unity and to one another, and then working hard to maintain that unity. And then finally, by trying to rely on God and his leaning. Seems to me that's a solid way to live your life. Would you agree? As a Christian. And so this week, why don't we commit ourselves to that? Why don't we commit ourselves to prayer? Why don't we commit ourselves to fellowship? Why don't we commit ourselves to the study of God's word? Why don't we commit ourselves to obeying his word? And then why don't we commit ourselves to rely upon the Lord in every one of our decisions for his guidance? And I believe the Lord will bless us if we do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the example of these disciples, sort of like uh, some older brothers, sisters that we're observing and learning from. And Lord, we, uh, we need to. So, Lord, bless us as we go forth this week. Lord, bless your word as we study it. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate it, even as you did with Peter in this instance. You'd cause us to understand things and be able to apply things that we've read a bunch of times before and never really took notice of. Lord, we pray that you would uh, be working within us and you'd bless our fellowship with each other. Lord, help us to commit this week in a fresh way to doing the hard work of maintaining unity amongst us. And then bless that as we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.